In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we're going to talk about bear-resistant containers, bushcraft on the national curriculum, blisters, modern Swiss army knives, bushcraft and skis, and using trash you find in the bush. Welcome, welcome to episode 34 of Ask Paul Kirtley. Hope you continue to be enjoying the summer. It's been pretty good where I've been. And again, I have chosen a lovely day to be out and about and to find time to record an episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. So without further ado, I am going to rattle through these questions as fast as I can. As always, the questions might be quick, the answers might be quick, the questions might be a bit more long-winded, the answers might be a little bit more involved, but my aim is always to try and give you the best answer I can, <clears throat> excuse me, and to deliver some value. And of course, you can always ask more questions. <clears throat> and I've got a frog in my throat to start off with. At least we've got no planes at the moment. All right, bear-resistant containers. <clears throat> and this is from Jason via email and he asks, Hey Paul, I've been wondering about your opinion on bear resistant containers and ursacs and things of the like. Do you regularly use one? Are they essential for trips? Well, that's a very environment dependent question, Jason. Um, here in the UK, it's not relevant at all because we don't have bears here anymore. And in most of Europe, it's not really relevant. Even in the areas where there are bears, they are so um, rare and also timid and afraid of humans that you're not going to have a problem. So I've camped in places like northern Sweden where there are bears, but there are very few of them. And I don't do anything different there really to what I do here. Um, but I should say that I typically don't just leave my food lying around on any camp because bears are not the only things that are going to be interested in your food. Um, mice upwards are going to be interested. So mice can chew through packs, chew through dry bags, uh, squirrels can get into things, crows, foxes, wild boar. There's all manner of wildlife will be attracted by the scent of food and things that smell like food. So I tend to put them up out of the way, even if it's just a few feet off the ground to make sure that they're not gonna uh, damage my container, damage my rucksack, damage my uh, waterproof bag if I'm on a canoe trip. Those sorts of things are always a consideration. Um, in areas where you are asked to use bear-proof containers, you should use them. You're normally being asked to use them in places where bears have become somewhat habituated to people, they've become habituated to campsites, they associate people with food, they associate even blue barrels in terms of canoe trips with food. And if you're asked to use bear-proof containers, such as on parts of the Pacific Crest Trail, you should do that because it's not just for your benefit and the benefit of other campers and hikers, it's also for the bear's benefit because if they become a problem bear, in some cases they are tranquilized and they're removed, but often they're shot 
and it's bad for the bear. So for the sake of the bears, for the sake of other outdoor users and for your own safety, follow the best practice which is recommended for the place you're going. And in my experience, the places where you most likely are going to have to use either fixed bear-proof containers in campsites or to take a bear-proof container with you is in areas where there's a relatively large number of people, in areas where there's a relatively large number of bears and they are used to people. When we do canoe trips in Canada, we don't take specific bear-proof containers in, in all of the places that we do client trips, whether it's French River, Bloodvein, Missanibe, and other places we, we may be looking at going. Most of those places don't have a problem with bears. They aren't regularly used by people leaving a big mess. Um, the bear populations are not necessarily very large. Um, all of those places are black bears, but we are not going to do anything that encourages bears to come into our campsite or come into a campsite after we've left for the benefit of other people who may be using that, that spot. So we are really meticulous, absolutely meticulous about not spilling food and grease and oil and washing up water in or around camp. We make sure that we're not leaving uh, litter with food uh, waste on it. We're making sure that we're either packing out, say for example we might take some meat for the first few days, some fresh food for the first few days, vacuum packed, so, but the materials that are packaging that meat they are either burned in the fire during the trip or they're washed in the river. They're taken with us, packed out. In terms of how we store our food, we tend to take blue barrels. Um, that helps contain the scent, although not completely. They are always stored out of our camp. And in there, we include things like toiletries, any cooking pots, all of the cut spoons, that have been used in stirring food, anything that might smell of food or have a fragrance that smells like food is going to be stored out of camp. Now, in areas where you can't get things up trees, they're taken a long way back from camp or they're hoisted up a tree so that bears can't get at them. You should always be trying to do that for your own benefit as well as the benefit of the bears. Other places you need to think about if you're camping on a promontory, don't put all the barrels on the end of that if you're camping further back because then the bear's probably going to have to come through your camp to get to the food that's stored outside of your camp. Take it back where the bear doesn't have to come through your camp to get to it. Um, so it's really just being fastidious, being meticulous, being thoughtful and everybody following best practice. Don't be spitting toothpaste around camp. Don't be throwing washing up water with food re residue near camp all of those sorts of things, those scents can attract bears and other wildlife. So that's best practice. But in terms of the specifics of your question, if you are required to use a bear-proof container where you're going, then use one. And they can be useful to carry anyway, if you, particularly if you're in a small group. Depends on the size of the group as well. It's something I didn't mention. But coming back to your original question, if I'm an individual or, or a pair hiking in bear country where bears have been known to access people's food, then I would probably carry a bear container. Um, I'm certainly going to make sure everything's up a tree, um, even if it's not in a bear container. And if I have to be carrying a bear-proof container, then I'm going to do so. I know people who've watched, walked the Pacific Crest Trail, for example, I already mentioned that, and they were required to carry 
bear proof canisters for, for parts of those walks and you should follow the best practice. Next question is from David Bailey. Hi, David. And his question is, uh, hi, Paul, thanks for all the info you're putting out there. Much appreciated. Question, do you think bushcraft should be on the national curriculum in schools? And what role do you think it can play in child development? Cheers, David. Well, I'm not a child, child psychologist or I'm not, I'm not an educational specialist in terms of educational performance but I know from personal anecdotal evidence I grew up largely in the countryside um, both in terms of the northeast of England as well as North Wales uh, all rural areas that I lived in until I was 18 and then I went to university in Edinburgh and again had access to the highlands of Scotland um, just a short train ride away um, I've always enjoyed, in my formative years, I always enjoyed access to the countryside, whether it was roaming around with my friends, you know, as a boy and um, through to more formal activities, either through school, such as going away for a week to an outdoor centre and doing some canoeing and cycling and walking and swimming and those sorts of things, or just in my late teens, getting into hiking and backpacking um, on my own terms, as well as doing a lot of mountain biking and cycling generally just enjoying the outdoors and i think it is definitely definitely formed part of my character in terms of uh, determination in terms of uh, taking it upon myself to make a journey um, whether it's a day trip or a longer trip but then i also apply the same mentality to undertake other tasks whether it's a, a small project or a larger project it's the same sort of approach that I take. What do I need to do to achieve my objective? What do I need to, to plan? What preparation do I need to make? Um, what expenses do I, you know, food, you know, in terms of a trip, it's food and equipment. In terms of a project, it might be, I want to make videos. What video camera do I need? What tripod do I need? How do I do that? How do I edit it? You know, those sorts of mental processes of just going, I want to achieve this. What steps do I need to take to, to get there? That's a life skill. And I think doing things that are practical where there's a tangible result, getting to the top of a mountain, cycling 80 miles in a day, um, building a shelter, whatever it is, there's a tangible result. You set out with that to, uh, task in mind and you achieve something. Um, that is a, a positive reinforcement that you can envisage doing something and then achieve it. And I think that's a really, really good uh, mental process to have the ability to follow through. Um, and that certainly served me well in terms of earning a living as well, whether it's working for other people or working for myself. Um, so I think there are, there are direct practical advantages to having outdoor skills. You're more capable as a person. You can light fires, you can navigate, you can you're not worried about sleeping under a hedge or spending the night out or um, being out in the dark or all of these things. It makes you more able and capable as a person and more confident in your own skin, as it were, in terms of your practical skills that you carry with you. Um, it means that things in your day-to-day -day life seem less important. The things that worry some people in the context of 
being cold and wet on the side of a mountain or having run out of glycogen on a long cycle ride and be really struggling to get back home or um, you know your tent poles being bent in really strong winds or um, you know doing two weeks in the wilderness in in a canoe and the struggles and the pain and the sweat and the you know the mud up to your knees on portage trails when you get back and you're faced with a business problem or a work problem it's kind of less important um, it puts things in perspective so all of these things i think you know right from childhood if you can develop a good um, sense of self by having a good relationship with the outdoors and nature i think are very important um, i certainly i think when i was a kid i and i know i'm talking about myself a lot but that's my experience really in terms of um, myself and my friends and my colleagues and my cohort i can see the benefits that it had for them people who work for me who i didn't know as a child but having talked to them about their childhood and how they developed and who introduced them to nature who introduced them to doing certain activities outdoors um, they have a very positive relationship with themselves with nature with their own abilities and it comes from a similar route it seems to me um, one of the other things i was very interested in plants as a child i was interested in insects i had some various guides and i was always just curious about about what was around me and i think that curiosity is a good thing to uh to um to nurture in young people as well um, certainly um, people i know who work with young people from urban environments who are introducing them to the natural environments in the countryside there are definite positive effects there in terms of um, learning, in terms of you know direct learning, but also just ability to learn in terms of attention, in terms of behaviour um, in the woods, but also back in the classroom more generally. Um, so yeah, there are all, all sorts of benefits. So I think there's direct practical benefits and I think there are also wider life skill benefits as well. So I, I would encourage, you know, I think, it's, I think the whole forest school and outdoor learning um, aspect of, of modern education is good. I think there should be more of that. Um, whether or not bushcraft is such, should be part of the national curriculum, um, I don't know. I think more people should be involved in scouts, certainly. And I think if you've got a good scout troop where you're going out and doing the pioneering skills and lighting fires and going on camp and all of those sorts of things, we built rafts in our scout group. We did fire lighting. Things like that are really good practical stuff because a lot of what kids do in school these days is not, particularly in junior schools, you know, I did, I did woodwork and metalwork and some textile skills and some cookery at secondary school. But in junior school, apart from sort of messy play when you're really young with paints and um, you know, sticking bits of string on paper and colouring them in and things, you know, we didn't do any practical skills. And I think kids generally would benefit from learning more practical skills of how to do And that's, that's useful later in life. Um, the woodwork skills I learned at, at school are still useful to me now. The technical drawing skills I learned at school are still useful to me now. The maths and English, of course, are, have been very useful to me, but the practical skills were also very useful. Learning basic sewing, learning basic cookery, all very, very, very useful. And a lot of those skills, you know, mending kit on trips, cooking on a campfire, they all have their root in some of the things I learned at school. 
and um, I think it would be useful to teach other things like you know why not teach them basic martial arts to kids why not teach um, first aid to kids teach navigation um, I have a lot of discussions I, I did maths at university and a lot of people are surprised at that given that I, I'm an outdoor instructor um, but um, as I've explained before in various interviews for me um, I was always inquisitive about the natural world and when you start looking at maths beyond basic secondary school maths most mathematical problems come out of people trying to solve a practical problem whether it's um, geometry of buildings whether it's building bridges working out how much liquid goes you need to fill a vessel all of these things are practical problems and, and come out of what we might know as physics these days um, a lot of them are sort of mechanical physical problems but also latterly um, problems people try to solve give rise to certain aspects of statistics they come from people asking practical questions then of course there may be okay well we don't have the mathematical apparatus to solve those problems that we've now formulated in mathematical terms now we need to develop our maths so that we can solve these equations but they come from practical problems now, how many colors do you need to color in a map so that no country is ever next to another country the same color that's a classic mathematical problem but it's also very very practical um, so the point being that I find that a lot of people who are surprised that I did maths at university or just curious about me doing maths at university don't know very much about maths in terms of its relationship with practical problems and that is down to bad teaching at school people who are turned off by maths at school just in the same way that as people turn off by French or music or anything else it's largely down to bad teaching the level of any of those things that you're learning at secondary school is pretty low it's not high level, it's not university level music, it's not English literature at a university level, it's not um, history at a real deep level of um, critical analysis of historical documents. It's basic, basic stuff you're being taught at school as part of a general education. And if you're being put off it at that basic level, it's bad teaching. It's teachers not enthusing the kids. And again, the, the more practical things and the more relevance that people can give to it. So for example, I had a, a physics teacher, Mr. Smallwood, um, for a while, and one of the things that we did one summer term was we went out to the school field, the playing fields, and he said, right, what we're gonna do is we're gonna pick some daisies and we're gonna count the petals on these daisies. And then you're gonna write it down in your notebooks. So daisy one had so many petals, daisy two had so many petals, and then we went back to the classroom and we graphed what the data that we collected collectively and it was a normal distribution so he taught us about normal distributions bell curves in a very practical way related it to the real world that it was a distribution that occurred in nature and i still remember it to this day and that would have been before GCSE, that would have been when I was 13, I'm 43 now that was 30 years ago and i still remember that lesson so that is good teaching and I don't think a lot of people have that at school so a combination of practical skills and teaching the more traditional academic subjects in a way that relates it to the real world is how education should be and unfortunately 
it's often the quality of the teachers which lets that down. And not, not all teachers, I had some very good teachers at school. I also had some bad teachers at school. I'm not gonna name and shame them, but I had some excellent teachers at school. I mentioned Mr. Smallwood, um, Mr. Uh, Mr. G um, at, at uh, A-level for maths, um, Mr. Carlino for economics, um, and a number of others who were very, very good. Mr. Craig for maths as well at A-level. Um, we had some very, very good teachers. Mr. Poole, who was my next door neighbor for a while, was a good English teacher. Mrs. Wheeler, even though she was a bit of a, had a reputation for being a bit of a battle ax, my knowledge of Shakespeare comes, <laughs> comes from Mrs. Wheeler's class. And she made it quite interesting. Um, you know, Merchant of Venice and, um, and Macbeth, the Scottish play, shouldn't mention, shouldn't mention it. You know, that knowledge comes from teachers making stuff interesting. My fear, and this is what, you know, you, some people might think I'm rambling here, I'm not. The point that I'm trying to make now, or coming around to, is that my fear, if you made bushcraft a mandatory subject for schools, is that every school would have to teach it, and not every school would have a teacher who was enthusiastic or knowledgeable or would enthuse the kids about it. And, and that would damage the subject. It would damage people's relationship to, subject, to the subject. I would rather, you know, people who are trained in forest schools take an element of it. And I would rather kids be encouraged to do extracurricular activities like scouts and have and, and the concentration on the scout association and people involved in bushcraft to train scout leaders to a level where they could enthuse the kids about the bushcraft skills. In some ways, I think that's better than making it something you have to, something else you have to do at school because that will turn some kids off automatically, particularly if you've got teachers who are not massively interested or capable as well. Those, those are my views. Um, but certainly, should we have more practical skills being taught at school from practical life skills? Absolutely. And the other thing, it's great to see so many kids doing Duke of Edinburgh uh, these days as well. You know, I see more and more kids out and about in little groups with backpacks on, with maps and compasses, navigating around the Lake District and Wales and Sussex and all the places I work, I see Duke of Edinburgh groups and that's fantastic. Um, it's not something I did as a kid um, in that formalized way. I did other things which gave me those skills, but it's great to see kids doing that and being out and, being, and learning to be independent and learning to be independent in the outdoors and, and more of that would be a good thing. Blisters. This is from Matt. Hi Paul, I'm new to hiking and recently did my longest walk of 22 kilometers over varying coastal terrain, dirt tracks, sand tracks, beach rocks, etc. About three quarters of the way through, my feet began to hurt. Upon reaching camp and inspecting them, I discovered a decent sized blister on each foot, both on the ball of my foot behind the big toe. I guess with more time walking long distance, excuse me, my feet may become more conditioned but I would love some of your advice as I'm sure you've had your fair share in your time. What would your tips be for blister prevention? And if you do develop some, what do you do when you arrive at camp to treat them? Keep up the great work. I enjoy listening to your podcast on my way to and from work. Cheers, Matt from Western Australia. Um, well, thank you, Matt. Good question. Um, I'm sure you're not the only person to have suffered blisters. The only person listening to this, certainly. And there's a key thing there that I think needs to be rectified with your approach to blisters. 
And it's a common thing that people do when they're new to hiking is that they soldier on. Even though they can feel a hot spot or something rubbing or a bit of pain, um, they're like, right, I'm gonna get to camp and sort this out. When it comes to your feet, if you can feel something rubbing, something getting sore, something uncomfortable, sort it out there and then because it may just, well, initially it will just be a sore spot. It might be a little hot spot. It might be a little red. Um, it might be pre-blister, but it's not gonna be a full-blown, big, liquid-filled blister right from the start. So if you can sense that something's not right, it might just be a case of loosening or tightening a shoelace, pulling a sock up, or putting some protection on your feet to stop the blister forming, then do that because the next day you're going to be able to function, you're going to be able to carry on walking, whereas otherwise, as you know from having blisters, it becomes extremely painful and if one of those blisters then bursts, it becomes more painful still. So my advice would be be alert to hot spots, rubbing spots, anything that gives you some sense that it's not right with your feet and sort it out there and then. Um, you're in Western Australia, you said you're talking on sand, walking on sandy tracks, on coastal tracks. You were probably quite hot at the time, and I would imagine sweaty feet soften, and then they're more likely to, to rub and blister as well. Um, also, sweaty socks have a tendency, particularly if you have some loose skin coming off and matting with your sock, they tend to stick to your stick to your feet and move around a bit more and then cause soreness underneath the skin, which then blisters. So a couple of things. If you're doing multi-day hikes, think about you wash your feet every day, air them off in the evenings, maybe put some talcum powder on them and get them dried out. Dry your socks out, have a couple of pairs of socks to wear against each other. Think about washing them if you can, if it's an extended hike. If you're just on a day hike, certainly carry some uh, blister kits. Here in the UK, my top recommendation would be Compede. Um, which is like a second skin which you can stick over a blister or a potential blister area. Um, I don't know if that's available in Australia. Um, it may be. Have a chat with your pharmacist. But Compede is quite a well-known brand over on this, you know, on, in, in the Northern Hemisphere up here. And you can get small ones, medium-sized ones, larger ones. So you'll get one that will stick on your heel, a little one that will stick under your toe. And basically it provides more protection and stops the blistering. You don't want to be sticking on an existing blister. That's too late, but it's something you can put on afterwards. In terms of dealing with blisters, some people say you should burst them. If you do burst them, you're more prone to infection and your body is putting that liquid there to pad the sore, the sore flesh underneath the skin. And in removing that liquid, you can make it very sore indeed. Um, if the blister has burst already, then what I would do would be to try and dry it as much as possible with some, um, some uh, lint or gauze, um, something absorbent from my kit that's not going to stick to the, uh, the, the blister or the open part of the blister, something sterilized, something not like a dirty bandana or something, try and dry it out as much as possible and then put a dressing on it that is also going to provide some padding. So something like a melalin dressing over it taped on would work very well. And the other thing I would caution against is some people will tape their feet right up with 
everything from zinc oxide tape to duct tape or gaffer tape. Just be a little bit wary about that. Um, I have a sensitivity to um, the adhesive in zinc oxide tape. The reason is I was doing a hike once, a multi-day hike, my feet were getting beaten up and I taped my feet right up with tape and I left that tape on for a number of days and when I took it off I had a rash underneath the tape and then whenever I put that type of tape on anywhere on my body now I get a rash that's exactly the same shape as the tape. Um, so I gave myself a sensitivity, I, I, I don't want to say an allergy because you know it, it's not an anaphylactic reaction but I get an itchy rash that is, um, is a bit of an issue for me because what then happens is it seems to leave my skin, that rash then seems to leave my skin prone to infection, particularly in terms of my feet. I, and this is, this is quite unsavory, but it's, it's important to understand the consequence of these things. If I use non-hypoallergenic tape on my feet, where that tape's been, um, where I get that rash, I'm much more likely to get then a fungal infection and that's it's happened to athlete's foot which is then difficult to get rid of because it's it, my skin doesn't seem to have the ability to deal with it um, my immune system in that area doesn't seem to to stop that infection taking hold and then I have to start using um, uh, potassium permanganate to uh, to soak my feet to get rid of it and it works well but you know um, so what I would say is just, just be a little bit cautious about sticking loads of tape on your feet as a precautionary measure. In terms of conditioning your feet, therefore, if you can walk around at home barefoot, that will certainly strengthen your feet and also um, strengthen the skin on the base of your feet. Um, if you've got any particular areas of hard skin, um, underneath your feet or on your toes, it can be worth removing those a bit, wearing them down, because what can happen then is if, you, if you've got hard skin from, say, your work shoes, and then you go to wear, wearing your hiking boots and that hard skin is getting pressed, that in itself can cause a blister under the hard skin. So you want strong skin, but not overly hard skin. Um, and so urinating on your feet in the shower, some people say that works. It, yeah, it can do. Um, treating your feet daily with surgical spirit. I've used that in, before in preparation for long hikes. That seems to work. Just walking around the house in your stocking feet, walking around the house with no shoes on strengthens your feet. You're less likely to get achy feet when you're on hikes. Um, making sure your boots are well worn in before you go on an extended hike. So wear them for an hour on a short hike, you know, for a number of days until they're very comfortable um, rather than just wearing them for the first time um, you know for 12 hours on a 20 kilometer hike um, and even if your boots are well worn in um, if you haven't worn them for a while and you've been wearing um, trainers you know plimsolls soft shoes um, or just thongs and then you put your boots on and go hiking your feet aren't used to that so get if you know you're going to go hiking particularly if you're doing multi-day hikes get your feet conditioned but both by toughening the skin um, getting rid of any problematic hard spots that are going to cause blisters underneath them walk barefoot when you can where it's safe i appreciate you're in australia it's not always safe to walk around barefoot if you can walk on the beach barefoot um, that helps toughen your skin up as well. Surgical spirit, 
helps as well. Um, get used to your boots, get your feet conditioned to your boots and your boots worn in as well. And then the final thing I would say is that some people find two pairs of socks better than one pair of sock, socks. So you have a hiking sock and then a very thin inner sock inside and rather than your skin rubbing against the sock, one sock can move around versus the other one. That's something to experiment with as well, like a thin merino wool sock inside a thicker hiking sock. And those thinner inner socks can be changed more regularly um, you know, for clean ones while you're using your main hiking sock for a more prolonged period. So you can reduce the weight, but still have more rotation of your, of your footwear than you might otherwise have. So there's a, there's a range of different things for you to try out there. And foot hygiene while you're out on a multi-day hike is important as well wash them, air them, dry your socks, powder your feet. And uh, when you do get a hot spot, stop and put something on it. If you do get a blister, dress it, try not to pop it, dress it so it's padded. If it is popped, dry it, put a dressing on it and make sure that you're not allowing an infection to get in there. Hopefully that helps. And yes, I have had a few blisters. <laughs> Okay, question from Wojtek in Poland. His question is about modern Swiss army knives. His question is, what is your view on Swiss army knives, particularly the recent models that have big rubberized ergonomic handles as well as locking blades? They appear sturdier and more comfortable to work with than the classic oblong shaped pocket tools we all know. Would you consider replacing a dedicated folding saw and or a folding knife with one of these for casual backpacking? Cheers from Poland, Wojtek. That's a good question. Um, there's a couple of questions in there that I've got slightly different answers to. Um, I'll answer the last part first. Would I take a modern Swiss Army knife as my main tool for a backpacking trip? Potentially, yes. Um, in any case, and in some cases I've done that. Um, if I'm not going to be doing a lot of woodcraft and campcraft, and um, particularly if I'm hiking above the tree line, um, if my main purpose is to get from A to B without, even if I'm traveling through woodland without stopping and doing too much in terms of interaction with the environment, if weight is a particular issue um, where I'm really trying to minimize weight, then there's a lot of utility in a well-chosen Swiss Army knife. Um, the one that I particularly favor these days is the Forester. It has a locking blade, it has a saw, it has quite an ergonomic handle. Um, it's solid without being too big. And I like that. I, I can do a lot of what I can do with bigger tools with that tool as long as I'm careful not to break it. Um, so yeah, that is for, for backpacking, that would be my first choice. Similarly, I used to use a knife called the Mauser Officer's Knife, which had Victor Inox blades. You can't buy those anymore, but that was also a good tool. It had a couple of um, blades. One was a drop point blade. One was the classic um, Victor Inox Swiss Army Knife blade. It's got a very good saw on it and it's got an awl and a corkscrew. And they're all very useful things to have. Um, corkscrews are remarkably useful. Are, you know, hiking through, you know, if you're hiking through the, the Pyrenees, um, you're going to drop down into some villages and you might want, whether you're on the French side or the, or the Spanish side, you might want to buy a bottle of wine, you know, halfway through your tour or something. Um, a, 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 a good 
good ability to pull a cork out is, is useful. I've certainly found myself on trips without a corkscrew, then having to go and find a corkscrew. So I like, um, I like a corkscrew on a, on a Swiss Army knife as well. So um, yes, would I always replace a folding saw with a Swiss Army knife? No, because if I'm choosing to take a folding saw or considering taking a folding saw, then I'm probably also thinking about taking a larger knife with me. Um, I'm gonna be doing more firewood processing. I might be doing more in terms of camp, uh, campcraft, in terms of making pot hangers, in terms of uh, camp furniture, in terms of uh, constructions, um, clearing portage trails, clearing trails in general, uh, those sorts of things a folding saw like a laplander is very very useful for even in terms of canoeing where i might be doing a trip and um, all i need really is a swiss army knife to open a packet um, maybe just do a few quick feather sticks or something nothing heavy i'm still going to take a folding saw because that's also part of my rescue equipment where i can saw through parts of a canoe, if, if somebody's legs are trapped by the boat folding up underneath them and their legs are trapped by the seat or the thwart, I can saw through that wood very quickly if I have a saw on me. So um, a folding saw has a special place often if you're considering taking one at all. And so I wouldn't generally replace that with a Swiss Army knife. The time I take a Swiss Army knife is more if I'm doing a backpacking trip on foot, often above the tree line or a lot of the time above the tree line where I know I'm not going to be staying in one spot a long time and doing a lot of campcraft um, or the potential for me getting stuck and needing those tools for woodcraft, campcraft, those sorts of things is less. Um, I, I like them a lot and the Forester is my favourite one at the moment. For those of you that live in jurisdictions where locking blades are an issue, just bear in mind that locking blades on Swiss Army knives come pretty much, certainly in the UK, under the same jurisdiction as carrying a fixed blade knife. So they don't get you around that. If it locks, it's considered effectively a fixed blade. Uh, whereas the Swiss Army knives with non-locking blades, as long as they're three inches or less, um, are legal carry under any circumstances. So that's just something for people to remember. But I do very much like the Forester for, for camping. And I think I answered all the, all the elements of your question there. And a, a general purpose blade that locks, a saw and a corkscrew are the things that I particularly look for. Bushcraft and skis. This is from Tunnel. Hey Paul, warm greetings to you from Estonia. Well, I don't think we've had a question from Estonia before, so thank you for your question, Tunnel. Um, I bought a pair of old Soviet hunting skis. They were in bad shape, but the only ones available that I could afford. I sanded off the old paint, engraved my own pattern, and finished them with boat varnish. Sounds really nice, Tunnel. Um, on the bottom side, I treated them with a new coat of pine tar, made new thick leather bindings, and they are now trying, uh, drying beside me as I'm writing this. Looking like the most beautiful things ever, and they smell um, is like a smoke sauna. I can't wait to try them out in the forest. Uh, it will be the first time in 15 years for me to be back on the skis. 
there seemed to be little talk about skis in bushcraft. Are they not popular with English or Americans, or have I just missed something on that subject? My question to you is this, can you tell us your opinion and experience about using skis in on a wilderness travel? Best wishes, Tunnel. Um, so there's a couple of sort of questions in, embedded in there as well. Um, we don't often get enough snow in England to ski, Tunnel. So that, that's the first part of that question. Um, in North America, there are plenty of people who ski in a modern alpine sense and also an increasing number of people who are telemarking. Um, some people do Nordic ski, but remember the traditional indigenous mode of transport in the forest in North America in winter is the snowshoe. Snowshoe is North American, skis are Eurasian. And so there is that cultural difference, you know, heritage difference to start off with. Um, my experience with using skis is in Norway and in Sweden in winter, uh, as well as a little bit in Scotland in winter when there was enough snow, but largely in Norway and Sweden. In Sweden, I've largely used traditional wooden skis in the forest, particularly. They're very, very good and allow you to get around the woods quite well once you get used to them and cover distance much more uh, efficiently than snowshoes do, for example. Um, but I do find snowshoes um, easier to be moving around, particularly when you're felling dead standing trees for long log fires or for winter hot tenting for wood for the stove. I find snowshoes a little bit easier to manage, particularly when using an axe, but I've done both and I do like the traditional wooden skis. I like the feel of them, I like the silence of them, and I like the efficiency of them in the forest. Um, in Norway, I've used more modern uh, Nordic mountain touring skis with metal edges, and I also really enjoy skiing on them. And um, I've made many journeys from hut to hut particularly uh, Norway has a very good hut system and you can make some fantastic journeys from hut to hut. And I've done that um, under guidance from guides and I've done that on my own as well with, with friends. And, um, and always very enjoyable, sometimes difficult, sometimes harsh conditions, but always uh, memorable journeys. So for me, winter travel is an important part of my outdoor life. Um, whether it's by snowshoe or by ski. And I particularly see the winter skills with the ax in the Northern forest being part of that. Um, all the winter fire skills, and you've seen my channel, you've seen my blog, the, the winter skills on there um, go very, very well with travel in the forest by ski in the winter. And I think they're part and parcel of that. But I don't see tr travel by ski as bushcraft per se, I see it as a mode of transport that allows you to get to places where you can apply your bushcraft. And you're right, you don't see so many people talking about that, particularly, you know, the, 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 the big bushcraft forums and groups in North America and the big bushcraft forums in the UK. There are less people who have experience of that, but I think if you spoke to people in uh, Norway and Sweden and Finland and maybe other, you know, Estonia and Latvia, then you will find people who do the same thing. They go into the forest, whether it's for hunting, they might be hunting ptarmigan, um, they might be uh, hunting 
um, other things um, or just going out and making a journey, going out to a hut. And of course, you've got the tradition of the Sami as well. Um, and, you know, they're transnational in terms of modern borders. They're in Norway, Sweden, Finland and Russia. And their traditional mode of transport was the ski. And you'll speak to some old Sami who will still carry skis with them on their snow machines. It's part of their skill set. It's part of their tradition. And some of the modern younger ones maybe won't, won't carry them so much. Um, so it is part of the tradition in the north. Um, but then it's a Scandinavian and Eurasian tradition. It's not an English tradition or a British tradition, and it's not a North American tradition. So to answer your question, I think that's why you see less emphasis um, in those places. I look forward to hearing about your adventures by ski as well. I've never been to Estonia in winter. Um, last question of this episode, and this is from Xander about trash. And he asks, Hi Paul, when in the woods or at the coast, one can't escape the trash some people leave behind. I believe that as a bushcrafter, you should be able to use everything in your environment to enjoy nature, including whatever trash is about. What is your experience in using trash in a bushcraft or survival situation? And do you have tips or examples of things you've made? Kind regards, Xander Marks in the Netherlands. Um, I think it's certainly useful to be able to use things that you find and be um, be inventive with materials and practical. I don't think it's necessarily part of bushcraft because my, my personal definition of bushcraft is using natural materials. And if somebody's left a plastic bag or some wire or trash, plastic bottles or something in an environment, then that's not part of the environment. That's, that's no more part of the environment than a house built in a city is really a part of the natural environment to me. But you're right, being able to make use of things is useful. Um, so what have I done either just to try them out or because I've needed to? A few things that spring to mind are um, using plastic bags for carrying things. So on a survival course, we were foraging and finding a plastic bag in a hedge um, allows you, you know, we just made sure it was clean, but then allows you to carry things. You, you, if you don't have a backpack or a day pack or anything to carry something in, you suddenly, once you start trying to gather things, you miss that carrying capacity. Um, one thing we used as well is we found an old balloon um, of the type that kids, young children have at parties that are filled with helium and float. People tie them to, to prams and push chairs or have them at parties. We found a deflated one in the woods that had burst and we actually used that to carry some of the forage food that we were we were foraging um, berries and, and, and whatnot that would otherwise have been difficult to carry we just made a little bag out of it um, other things i've used old fence wire for camp craft projects whether it's for bindings or making pot hangers um, very very useful i've even made coat hangers with old fencing wire for use in camp um, I've spent time with hunter-gatherers in Africa and one of the things that they do is they take old animal feed sacks um, 
and make cordage out of them for bowstrings. Um, that was something that I was quite impressed with. The strength, once it was laid up as cordage, um, was very, very good indeed and of, of a similar nature to um, the sinews, which would have been their traditional um, bowstring materials. Um, I've used plastic bottles to boil water. It tastes disgusting, but you can boil water in a plastic bottle on a fire. Um, you don't need me to show you that. I'm sure you can find something on YouTube to, to know how to do that. Um, I wouldn't be doing that on a regular basis. I think the chemicals that end up in the water do you no good at all and it tastes foul. And you also need to make sure that, the, that, that what's been in the bottle before isn't you know, toxic and you don't always know that. Um, so, but these things can all be used. Um, Coke cans, you know, you know the old trick of making a parabolic mirror out of the base of a Coke can. Um, bits of glass can be used, uh, you know, shaped pieces of glass can be used as lenses for fire lighting. There are lots and lots of uses for trash um, and it, it comes back to having a fundamental understanding of um, the skills that you're com combining them with, whether it's fire lighting or campcraft or bowstring making or cordage making. Um, in some ways they're an extension of those uh, uses of natural materials, but in other ways they're, a, um, they're an adaptation and I think you still have that baseline level of skill and then see what you can do to adapt. But I don't go looking for trash to see what I can make out of it. Um, if I see trash in nature, it makes me, makes me sad, makes me somewhat angry sometimes, particularly if people have been careless and they've just left things there. Um, I do try and tidy things up as much as I can. You can't always carry all the trash that you see, but when I go for hikes, if I see candy wrappers and, and things on trails, I try and pick them up and, and take them back and, and put them in the, in the trash where they're gonna to go to somewhere more contained and hopefully for uh, recycling or incineration. So good question though, and different. So thank you, Xander. And that brings us to the end of this episode. And um, I didn't mention where I was at the beginning. Um, I'm back where I was a few weeks ago, um, not far from the oak that I was sat on a few weeks ago. Really nice spot, um, beautiful day again, and uh, really enjoyed being out today. Um, bit tired now, I have to say. I'm gonna go home and have something to eat, end of the day. And it's always quite draining doing these sessions, talking off the top of my head, but hopefully that adds good value to you. That gives you some insight into my thinking in various areas. And I hope you've enjoyed that. And as always, leave a comment, leave your thoughts, YouTube and my blog in particular, leave me a comment, your thoughts there. I do always read them, even if I don't always reply. Um, I do my best to reply, but I'm always interested to read what people think or if they've got any additional information or comments or thoughts on some of the questions that we've discussed. Always good to hear. And please do keep your questions coming in. Um, Speakpipe, Instagram, Twitter, or via contact form on my blog. If you go to Ask Paul Kirtley, there's a main menu tab at the top of the page. If you go to Ask Paul Kirtley there, it's got all the ways in which you can ask a question and looking forward to answering more of your questions on the next episode. So take care and enjoy the outdoors in the meantime.